Hey, it's Pastor Mike. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and make it a regular part of your day, can I ask for your regular support? We really can't make any of our sermon series or devotions without the continual support of friends like you. Time of Grace, in case you didn't know, is 100% donor-funded, meaning it is your gifts that make it possible for us to use television and print and digital media to share the good news of God's amazing grace. Just click on the link in the episode notes, and thank you for all of your prayers and all of your support. God bless. I want to talk to you this week about a person from the Bible named David. Now, eventually, he would become known as King David, the many times great-grandpa of Jesus. He would actually go on to become the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had, with, of course, the exception of his many times great-grandson, Jesus. So here's how it started. God was the king of Israel, but the Israelites wanted to be like all the other nations around them and have a king, and so God gave them their first king. He was named Saul. Now, Saul was an impressive guy. Uh, He was a head taller than everybody else. I mean, if there was a vote, he would have been voted Mr. Israel. It's kind of a shame that his uh, hometown of Gibeah didn't have a high school basketball team. He would have been the star. Uh, But the problem is Saul didn't always do the things that God wanted done for his people. And so God rejected Saul as king, and he sent his prophet Samuel to anoint the next king. Now, anointing is probably something we're not super familiar with. Basically, it was this. Uh, God would send his prophet with a horn of oil um, to go to someone to set them apart for a special task, and then God would equip them for that task. And and the prophet would pour the oil over the person's head, and that was God basically saying, you're the one, you're my chosen one. It was a very special thing. So God sends Samuel to this Israelite named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and God was going to anoint one of them as the next king of Israel. And so Jesse sends his oldest son out in front of Samuel. His name was Eliab, and Eliab was an impressive-looking guy, and Samuel was probably fingering his horn of oil, and he was thinking to himself, this has to be the guy. But to his surprise, God said, no, he's he's not the one I chose. And then God says something really important. He says, the Lord doesn't look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You remember Saul was an outwardly impressive guy, but inwardly his heart wasn't right. And so God doesn't always pick the one that the world would pick. He's going for heart. Well, Jesse's other six sons, the next six oldest sons, pass in front of Samuel. And for each one, Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen you. The Lord has not chosen you. Until finally the last one passed in front. And he turned to Jesse and he said, do you have any more sons? And Jesse said, well, yeah, I, there's the youngest one, but he's out in the field tending the flocks. And so Samuel calls for him, and the servants bring David, the youngest son, in front of Samuel, sheep smell and all, and much to the surprise, I'm sure, of his father Jesse and his other older seven brothers, Samuel anoints David, this shepherd boy, the next king of the nation of Israel. So what's the lesson for us? Well, I think a couple of things. Uh, One, God doesn't ask you to be the flashiest, the smartest, the most attractive person to be able to accomplish his will. Remember, God doesn't look at those outward appearances. He's going for heart. And here's the cool truth. When God worked faith in your heart, it was like he was taking his horn of oil and pouring it all over your head and saying, you're the one, you're the one I choose for my service. What what an awesome privilege. And, And he puts so many opportunities in front of us every day to carry that out. 
Maybe God has put an opportunity in front of you to be a, a helping hand or a, a listening ear or a proclaimer of his truth to someone. So I guess the question would be, who is that someone in your life that you could serve today? Uh, the, the second lesson and the more important one is this. To shepherds out in the same fields of Bethlehem a thousand years later, angel choirs would announce the birth of the shepherd king who was going to lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus, the many times great-grandson of King David, never hesitated to serve you. Use that as motivation in your life to serve others. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with the phrase David and Goliath. Well, what was the story about? Goliath was a Philistine, and the Philistines were enemies of the Israelites. David was a teenage shepherd boy at the time, and uh, he was too young to fight in the military, so he was bringing food and supplies for his brothers who were on the front lines. They were in Israel's military when he saw him, Goliath. Goliath's description was impressive. He was nine and a half feet tall, and um, his armor that he wore weighed in at 125 pounds. The tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. You add to that the fact that the average male at that time didn't grow to much more than five foot six inches tall, and you kind of get the picture, right? Uh, what was here's the here's the David and Goliath story in a nutshell. So that that the Israelites and the Philistines are lined up for battle in the Valley of Elah. On the one side, you've got the Philistines with their giant Goliath barking out challenges against Israel and Israel's God. On the other side, you have the Israelites cowering in fear, wondering how they're going to defeat the giant Goliath. Well, Goliath's challenge was kind of simple, hand-to-hand combat. Instead of the entire armies going to war against each other, let's settle this with just your best soldier against our best soldier. Um, and, And whoever wins... Well, they win. If, if Goliath wins, then the Israelites become the Philistine slaves. And if the Israelites win, well, then the Philistines become the Israelite slaves. Very, very simple. And, and so, like we said, David is too young to be in the military, uh, but his father wants to get some nice home-cooked bread and, uh, to, to his brothers and, and, and also some cheese for their commanders. And so David's on a, an errand run to the front lines, and he, um, he hears Goliath challenging Israel. And he gets annoyed because he's not just challenging Israel, he's challenging Israel's God. And so he just goes from soldier to soldier talking about this and Saul, the king, hears about it and he summons David before him. And David basically says, this teenage shepherd boy says, you know what, I can take Goliath down. And he says, I I fought as a shepherd against lions and bears and I came out the winner. God was with me then and he'll be with me now. And shockingly, King Saul says, okay, uh, you can fight. And Saul tried to put his own armor on David, uh, but David wasn't used to armor. Not to mention Saul was a foot taller than everybody else. It probably didn't fit super well. No, sword and armor weren't David's uh, weapons. He was good with a slingshot. And so David went down to a stream and he picked out these five smooth stones. And each stone would have been like two to three inches in diameter. And when flung by someone who was a master with a slingshot, these stones could reach speeds of 100 to even 150 miles an hour with the stopping action of a 45 caliber pistol. You think it would hurt to get hit in the head with a 90 mile an hour fastball? Just imagine what these stones would do. So so Goliath is, he's barking out these challenges and, and, and ridiculing David. And David runs to the battle line. 
he picks up one of his stones, puts it in his sling, and starts swinging. You can just picture David standing there and hearing the slingshot, slingshot until the moment was right, and he releases the stone, and smack, Goliath dies in one shot. Nothing like a stone in the head to shut up a giant, right? Well, here's my question for you. Who are we in this account? This may surprise you. We are not David. We're more like the Israelites cowering in the hills. If you read this story and and take away from it that like David, you need to be one who's going to take down all your giants in life, well, you're going to be disappointed. Because what happens when you try to control your anger or or, um, control your tongue, but you know what? Both get the best of you. What happens when you can't kick the addiction for more than a week? What happens when you you try and try at your marriage, but you know what? He leaves you anyway, or she ignores you anyway. Friends, you don't need a moralistic, be more like David story. You need a David, and you have one in David's son. A thousand years after David, there was one who was willing to stand in the gap between the giants that stood against us of sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus took down those giants by his death on the cross and by his empty tomb. And when he did that, he won. You won. And so now, even in this life, in some sense, the Christian loses every battle because we're in a sinful world. But because of Jesus, You've already won the war. Love your enemies. That has to be one of the hardest things that Jesus ever asked us to do. And we've got a great example of it in the story of David for today. Maybe a little backstory is helpful. So after David defeated Goliath, the giant, um, and won Israel the victory, he entered into Saul's service and he became one of his generals. And, and, And God was with him and he had incredible success. The only problem was... King Saul got jealous of his success and actually wanted to kill him. And so David ran away with a small group of people and he would go from place to place hiding and Saul would go chasing after him to try to kill him. Here's my point. Saul and David were not friends. Saul was trying to kill David. That makes Saul David's enemy. Um, And so the the people where where David was hiding, um, the people from the city, it was kind of like, your little brother who used to run to mom and tattle on you? Well, they ran and told King Saul where David was hiding. And so Saul took Abner, his general, and 3,000 soldiers to go where David was hiding. A little overkill? Yeah, that's how much Saul hated David, okay? So, um, so they camp, they set up camp, and the way it worked is that they would all um, set up the camp, and then Saul would be right in the middle of them. He's the most important person. He'd be the hardest person to get to. Well, David found out where Saul was encamped, and he said, who's going to go with me? And Abishai said, well, I'll go with you. And so they snuck in at night, and this is an amazing miracle in and of itself. They made it all the way to where Saul was, and they found Saul fast asleep with a jug of water and a spear stuck in the ground next to his head. Now, put yourself in their shoes. What would you do to the guy who had driven you from your home and your family, who had murdered innocent people on your account trying to hunt you down, and who would not stop hunting you down until you were dead? Well, let's see, there's, there's a spear, and there's his head, and it's not a moving target because he's fast asleep. Chances are you'd be thinking what Abishai was thinking. Let's kill him with a spear. But David says, no, I'm not going to lay a hand on Saul. I, I, that's not our business to take vengeance on Saul. That's God's business to do justice. No, just grab that water jug and his spear and let's go. 
David thought that the spear would make the point. Get it? Okay, that's a terrible joke. But anyway, so David and Saul, or David and Abishai, they go back over to their side and they go up on a hill and they call out to the Israelites, they, or to, the, to Saul's soldiers and, and to Saul himself, and they said, why didn't you protect your king? Where are the water jug and the spear that were next to his head? And David showed Saul the water jug and the spear and Saul realized that David could have killed him, but he didn't. So Saul went home. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are in a position, think of your worst enemy in your head, and now you're in a position where you see them fast asleep with a spear stuck in the ground next to their head. Figuratively speaking, obviously. Maybe that spear is a chance to gossip about them or um, a, a chance to ruin their reputation or a chance to do something to them to get back at them for what they've done to you or how they feel about you. What would you be thinking? Chances are you'd be thinking what Abishai was thinking. Let's kill him with the spear. But David didn't. He said, I'm not going to lay a hand on Saul. Why? Because Saul deserved it? Absolutely not. It's because his Lord did. Always remember how God treated his enemies, you and me. While we were still sinners, not friends, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you might ask Jesus, why? Why would you do that for your enemies? And his answer would be profoundly simple. Because they are no longer my enemies when I love them. He calls you friend. And so the next time you see your enemy put down the spear, and you might object, but they don't deserve it, and you'd be absolutely right, but that's not the point. Your Savior Jesus does, and he asks you to love them. So kill them with kindness, not a spear. We're talking about David this week. Um, the David who took down the giant Goliath and righteously ran from Saul, the current king who was trying to kill him, instead of killing him when he had the opportunity, and eventually became the greatest king in the nation of Israel's history. For all those reasons, I love being called David. That's my name. But if you have a biblical name, then you know this truth about uh, our heroes in the Bible. Uh, most of our good guys are actually bad guys, and David is no different. So David is out one night on his palace roof, overlooking the city they now call the city of David. And he sees this beautiful woman bathing down below on her rooftop. And he asks, who is that? And the servant says, well, isn't that Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You see, there's a reason why the servant knew who this was. Uriah was no nameless private. He was one of Israel's greatest heroes. He was one of David's mighty men. He had risked his life for the king countless times. But David took his wife anyway. And as if David hadn't acted badly enough, then the news came that sent David into a tailspin. Bathsheba sends a telegram with three words, I am pregnant. And at this point in the account, we're screaming at David, just say you're sorry to Uriah, repent, because we know how dangerous sin is. Sin is a terrorist. And every Christian needs to take the United States government approach to terrorists. We don't negotiate with terrorists, we kill them. But David doesn't. He can't. Instead, he tries to call Uriah back from the front lines and get him to sleep with his wife. But Uriah nobly refuses to do that while his men are in the field fighting for Israel. And so David has him killed instead. Coveting, fornication, uh, lying, murder. Why, David? Well, that's actually pretty easy. 
It's because David wanted everyone to see the great, godly, successful king he'd always been instead of the truth. David didn't want them to see him, not the real him, and we get that, don't we? I probably don't have to convince you that there's often a difference between who you are and who you let people believe you are. You know, are you always the well-put-together person, the person that everybody sees confidently and successfully juggling job and family and responsibilities? Or when no one's looking, are you truthfully someone else? Do your friends love a carefully created version of you or do they really love you? Well, we may be able to fool others, but there is one who sees. And God said the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's what the Bible says. How many times could that be said about our lives? So what do you suppose comes next? So God struck down David for his sin? No. And this is the grace I want to point out today. This is God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. This is the grace that ought to make our jaws hit the floor, only followed by our knees in worship and praise of our God. The very next line says, So the Lord sent Nathan. It's unbelievable. David had been spitting in God's face for over a year. And God gives him a gift. That's what Nathan means, Nathan the prophet. And why? what was Nathan's goal? It wasn't to condemn David to hell. It was to get him to repent so that he could hear the forgiveness of God. The real question in this account is not how could David, but it's really how could God? Has God given you a Nathan in your life? You know, someone who's willing to point out when you're going off the wrong path? Instead of getting offended that somebody is getting into your business, see it from God's perspective and understand their goal. They're not pointing out your sin to show that they're better than you or because they're jealous of you. They're not doing this because they're sadistic and take joy in your pain. They're doing this because they desperately want you to repent and see the forgiveness that is yours from David's greater son. A son not born from an adulterous affair like David and Bathsheba's was but one born generations later from a virgin named Mary. A a son who, like his forefather, knew what it was like to have his bones waste away and groan all day long, not because he was silently carrying his own sins, but because he was publicly carrying the sins of the whole world on the cross until they were all forgiven, even David's sin, even your sin, even my sin. This is the grace greater than all our sin, a grace that seeks what is lost. Yesterday, we saw God's grace seeks what is lost as God sent Nathan the prophet to, uh, to call David back to repentance after he took another man's wife and killed him. Today, we're going to see that God's grace finds what it seeks. Uh, so God sent this prophet Nathan to David. Um, and, and when Nathan got to David, He started by telling him a story. And and it's important to note that he was telling the shepherd king about a story about a poor man who had one little lamb. And this poor man, he loved the lamb. The lamb ate from his plate, it drank from his cup, it, it slept in his bed, it was like a daughter to him. And then a rich neighbor who had many sheep came and killed the poor man's lamb and ate it. God's grace is really smart. Uh, And Nathan, if he would have come at David with guns blazing, 
that would not have gone well. The puffed up King David would not have taken that well. Instead, Nathan tells him a story. Nathan's sword was within in, in an inch of uh, David's conscience before David even realized Nathan had a sword. And it's at this point in the account that David gets seriously religious. He explodes, the man who did this deserves to die. I wonder what his face looked like when Nathan pointed at him and said, you, you're the one. You did this. And then he laid it out. And he spoke from the Lord. The Lord said, why? Why, why did you despise me? I, I, I gave you, I gave you, or I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I, I, I gave you the, the kingdoms of, of, of Israel and Judah. If all of that had been too little, I would have given you more, David. Why did you despise me? Why did you take Uriah's wife? Why did you kill Uriah? David didn't want to hear it, but he needed to. You know, there are sometimes things in God's word that make us uncomfortable. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because God's talking about me and my sin. He's talking about you and your sin. But always understand God's goal in doing that. It's to lead you to the place where David eventually got to. So David hears the word of the Lord and instantly his arrogance is gone. He's painfully aware of his sin. And he doesn't offer any excuses. No cloaking, no reasons, no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded. He just simply gives the most beautiful confession a sinner can make. I have sinned against the Lord. And it is at this point that I think the most important thing in the account comes out. It's what comes between David's confession and cry for mercy and God's announcement of forgiveness. It's absolutely nothing. David cries out, I've sinned against the Lord. And immediately the Father in heaven cries out, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. That is grace greater than all your sin. Did you see what just happened there? Grace found what it sought. And friends, this is God's message for you today. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been, no matter what you are, your heavenly Father is here to forgive you and wrap you in forgiveness and wrap you in his Son's blood and, 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 and present you as his own dearly loved child. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. God took this faithless, foolish, fallen king and he forgave him. The end. I mean, there were consequences, earthly consequences to his sin, but there were no eternal ones. Instead, God forgives King David and he talks about him as he only could because of Jesus' blood and forgiveness. David is a man after my own heart. That's what our God is like. He stopped at nothing to forgive David, and he stops at nothing, including the death of his own son, to forgive you. Live in that joy today. The joy of a, of a grace that's greater than all our sin. A, a grace that seeks what is lost, and then the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die, and then finds what it seeks. <laughs> 